Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Women aren't having babies anymore. Well, they are, but they're having a lot fewer of them, especially in parts of Europe and Japan. If that's the future for all of us, the declining birth rate could have big implications for the economy, society, and everything. Later in the programme, I'll be talking to a Canadian academic, Daryl Bricker, who thinks that all the big problems the world will be facing in 50 years' time will relate in some way to a falling population. I'll also chat to Bloomberg columnist Justin Fox about why people who work from home are now the best-paid US workers. But first, Bloomberg's economy reporter in Madrid, Jeanette Newman, has been to the epicentre of Europe's baby bust to get a glimpse of what might be ahead. Nine women sit around a table at a health clinic in northern Spain. They're talking about why their home region of Asturias has the lowest fertility rate in the European Union. Those that don't have work blame the bad labor market. Those that do have a job blame long working hours. All of the women have one or two children. If it weren't for their own parents stepping in to babysit most days, the women say they wouldn't make it. Those problems might sound familiar to many women, but in Asturias, they have them in spades. Most of the local coal mines have closed, and the steel industry is in decline. The economy is shrinking. The unemployment rate is 14%. Alba Escobio Sanchez is pregnant with her first child. At 31 years old, she's the only one among her group of friends in Asturias who will have a kid. I always knew that I wanted to have kids, even three. But I kept putting it off because of all the uncertainty with jobs. Work-life balance is a problem in Spain in general, not just Asturias. But here we have the more serious problem that there's no work. In Asturias, women are likely to have an average of 1.03 children, among the lowest fertility rates in the world. The figure measures the average number of children a woman is expected to have, based on current fertility trends. The number in Asturias is well below the European Union average of 1.6 children per woman. And that EU average is under the 2.1 children per woman that's necessary to maintain a stable population. In Asturias, there have been more deaths than births since 1985. At the same time, people in Asturias, like the rest of Spain, live longer than almost everyone else. The average life expectancy here is nearly 83 years. Put those two demographic trends together and you get a shrinking, aging population. Just over a million people lived in the region in 1998. Since then, the population has fallen by about 50,000. Over the next decade, economists expect the region to lose another 50,000 people. 65-year-old Ángeles Montero García tells the women that those shifts have transformed her own family in town. It's all of us older people who remain here. There are no children which are the joy of any town. The plunging fertility rate and rapidly aging population in Asturias are an extreme example of a demographic trend that's reshaping economies around the world. Remember studying Thomas Malthus in economics? 
During the past couple centuries, Malthus and other demographers were mainly concerned with overpopulation. They thought more people posed a threat to the supply of food and water and to the environment. Malthus said only war, famine, and disease would slow population growth. In fact, all it took was an industrial revolution and letting women into the workplace. Birth rates began to drop during the Industrial Revolution, as countries became more prosperous and mortality rates fell. Across much of the world, those declines accelerated in recent decades as more women joined the labor market. Changing attitudes about having and rearing children have also played a role. Women are having fewer children and later in life. In 2018, countries such as the United States and South Korea reported their lowest fertility rates ever. In 1970, a woman in the U.S. could be expected to have an average of 2.5 children. Now, she is expected to have on average just over 1.7. The concern in many countries, then, has become population decline. Alejandro Macarrón, a demographic expert and consultant, tells me that a smaller number of kids will have a big impact on businesses. We spoke in the children's clothing department of Spain's largest department store, El Corte Inglés. He has to remind executives that demographic changes can sometimes explain weaker sales, for instance. Maybe they wonder why they're selling less than uh, 10 years ago, but uh, there are 30% less uh, babies last year in 2018 than in 2008. No? That might be one of the reasons. An aging population consumes differently. Older people tend to consume less so-called durable goods, think fewer dishwashers and cars. That also means they spend less on fuel. Those items tend to bring in a lot of taxes, so more sluggish sales can mean less in government coffers. Ignacio de la Torre is chief economist at investment bank Arcano Group. At his office in Madrid, he tells me that low birth rates mean policymakers should focus on increasing productivity. Economic growth just depends on two variables, the number of hours worked and productivity per hour worked. And the number of hours worked uh, normally is pretty much linked to the growth of your active population. Active population uh, has started to decline in the OECD countries uh, three years ago, as well as in China, which means that uh, in the past we had two engines of growth. Today we only have one engine of growth, which is, uh, which is uh, productivity. During the past 20 years in Asturias, the size of the economy has shrunk as a share of the broader Spanish economy. Pensions and other government benefits make up around 40 percent of income for households here. That's a much greater portion than in the rest of Spain. Asturias has attracted some immigration to counter the ebbing population, but nothing significant. Potential workers aren't drawn to the less dynamic economy. Those who do immigrate are mainly from outside Spain, the head of the statistics agency tells me. They come to work in one of the few industries that is booming, elderly care. The mismatch of resources for young and old is on display in Sotrondio, the small town in Asturias where I spoke with the women about the low fertility rate. In the town and the surrounding area, there are eight social centers for elderly people and just one youth center. I visited one of the centers for the elderly, Retirees take exercise classes and play card games, which seem to get pretty heated. Manuel Turrado Garcia runs one of the centers. A former miner, he has the build of someone who spent years breaking coal with a sledgehammer. 
We finished the year with 897 members in a town of 3,000 people. That's a lot. But it's to be expected. We're in a town that's growing old, very old. You barely see any kids around. Across town, I visit the only youth center in the area. It's quiet. Manuel Angel Cuesta is the manager. He says the local government has long dedicated greater resources toward older residents. They're more politically active and organized than young voters. There is high youth unemployment, which means they leave. It's a vicious cycle, because if the young people leave, then there are people here to have kids, and therefore the birth rate goes down. It's very difficult to turn things around. Most demographers agree with Manuel Angel. The notable jump in fertility rates is unlikely in Asturias or elsewhere in developed countries. But can anything be done to slightly boost the fertility rate so that women can have the children they want and economists can rest somewhat assured about pensions and productivity? South Korea has tried. In an effort to boost the world's lowest fertility rate, Seoul has spent billions on subsidized childcare, free nurseries, and stipends, to no avail. That's in part because the measures haven't addressed broader issues, says Olivier Thévenon, an OECD economist. There are few top slots at the universities or in the labor market. That makes things very competitive. And many women are still expected to stop working if they have a child. Other countries, such as Russia and Hungary, have recently increased financial incentives for women to have children. Such measures can sometimes encourage a woman to have a child sooner than she was planning. But the measures aren't usually successful at boosting the fertility rate over time. France and the Nordic countries, on the other hand, have typically had a slightly higher fertility rate than peers. That's in part because they have more favorable labor market conditions for women who want to have children. That includes subsidized childcare, for instance, parental leave, and a work culture that allows more family time. But a recent and striking decline in the fertility rate in the Nordic countries in particular seem to dethrone their status as the gold standard for work-life balance. Researchers are still investigating why, but Michaela Krayenfeld, a professor of sociology at the Hurdy School in Berlin, points out that there could be an entirely benign explanation. Women in these countries may simply be choosing to have their children later. That could change what we might call the headline fertility rate for a few years. But in her view, the Nordics are still the outstanding examples of countries that are committed to letting women combine a career with as many children as they want. When you encourage compatibility of work and family life and also the parental leave benefit, that actually you encourage people actually to combine work and family life and that it's good for gender equality and also um, for the sustainability of the household because then both couples can work and that is actually for the economic uh, foundation of the family actually more important on the long run. Asturias is an example, writ large, of the economic perils of having too many hurdles for women who want to work and also be a mom. There could be a big economic payoff awaiting any region or country that's able to make it easier. For Bloomberg News, I'm Jeanette Newman. So I'm joined now by Daryl Bricker, the Canadian author and pollster, who was the co-author with John Ibbotson of the book Empty Planet earlier this year. Daryl, thanks very much uh, for chatting to Stephanomics. Well, I'm looking forward to having a chat with you about this today, Stephanie. So so tell us about the 
book because it's it was squarely on the themes uh, that we talked about in Jeanette's piece. You know, the, the the implications of this potential for the global population to fall. And I guess you you think that what we're seeing in places like Spain is just the beginning and that the population globally is going to fall even more than the kind of official UN forecast suggests. Well, and, and so, does, so does the UN, even since we wrote the book, uh, because they've adjusted down their estimates by 300 million, did it just a couple of months ago. And that, uh, that's uh, about the size of the population of the United States. So it gives you some sense of how big the, uh, the potential for decline is. So the, the empty planet is really all about what I call vertical knowledge. It's that thing that everybody knows, that everybody repeats, that nobody understands or is actually checked. So what John Ibbotson and I did was check. And lo and behold, when you go in and, and look at the, the way that the, uh, the population estimates have been put together, they really are biased to suggest a, a, a much larger population than we're likely to have in the world. So um, the uh, premise of the book is that the UN says we're going to be at about 11 billion people by the turn of the century. The premise of the book is we will never get there. We'll probably peak out somewhere between 8 and 9 billion and then start to decline. And the only question is how rapidly. It struck me, I think, your story, one of the big pieces of that is what you think is going to happen in Africa. Is that right? Because that's obviously one of the areas where we had expected population growth to continue to be quite rapid relative to other parts of the world. So we traveled to Africa. We went to, uh, we went to Kenya and we looked around. We asked people who were demographers. We interviewed people who were living um, uh, with these types of family issues in, those, uh, in, in that country, in, in Nairobi. And you know, what we found was that, some of the, that many of the things that were having an effect in other places are having an effect in Kenya too. And the reason for that is because it's about urbanization and, and Kenya is going through rapid urbanization, as is most of Africa, along with the effect of that on women's lives. And when women move into cities, their lives change. They get access to education. Uh, they get access to jobs and careers. They live a different life than their mother or their grandmother lived. And part of that different life is having a smaller family. So it's already started in Kenya where it's gone from a 1960 birth rate of about eight down to about five, about 10 years ago. It's now down below four. It's happening very, very rapidly. And if we step back and think... What does this mean for the global economy? What kind of implications are we going to be grappling with over the next 10, 20? You go uh, look ahead even um, further than that to the, the second half of the 21st century. But you know, we tend to think in Europe, Jeanette was talking about the efforts of, of governments to sort of effectively bribe people to have more, more kids. You know, We tend to think it's a bad thing to have this potential... Uh, decline in the population. Is that, is that the right way to think about it? No, it's not, as we say in the book, it's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just a big thing. And we have to understand <laughs> it. And the, the thing about all of those uh, attempts to uh, bribe people, uh, as you said, uh, to have larger families, well, for the most part, they haven't paid off. For example, France, which you mentioned, uh, the birth rate is below replacement. In all the Nordic countries, the birth rate is below replacement. They can have some impact on the speed at which this happens, but the direction of it, pretty much not. And the reason for that is what they're up against is not a financial decision that people are making. It's not an economically, rationally driven decision. It's really a decision about the, the culture of the country, you know, what, what, 
what do they support, larger families or smaller families, and the lives that uh, the parents want to live. And part of that life that they want to live today, the model for the life they want to live today is a smaller family. Should we worry about the growth implications? I mean, a lot of people would say, uh, you you look at the spending habits of older people and you tend to think um, that, you know, consumption will be lower, growth will be lower. Um, There's also people, an older population is associated with less innovation. But I don't know, do you think maybe that would change? I just wonder, do you think think we're necessarily going to see less economic growth, even per head, than we have in the in the future in the future than we have in the past. Well, you hit on a really key point, Stephanie. It's not just that the size of the population is going to change, but the structure of the population is going to change. So we have this, uh, and there's a huge youth bias when it comes to thinking about the economy. You know, we'll have a population, maybe smaller, that will be going through. Uh, uh, time and space as, as, as structured as it is today, it won't be. Uh, the biggest growth in the population today is not as a result of people coming into the population, it's as a, re- as a result of people not leaving. Uh, we're, uh, we're getting so much better at keeping people alive and it's had a, a huge impact on the structure of our population. We're really bad at making new people or getting worse at it, in fact. We're really, really good at, get, at keeping people alive. And as a result of this huge growth of, of elderly people, the idea that you know, early life consumption is going to drive our economy is going to have to change. But the large proportion of the consumption you do when you're older, at least in the current model, certainly the very old people, is healthcare is, is, is only particular sectors. I guess that's what people are sort of nervous about, how that might skew our economy going forward. Oh, yeah. There's, there's no doubt it's going to have a, a, a huge impact. There's very little study that's been done on this. Most of the uh, conversations we have about, uh, about the economy are still stuck in that old po- uh, the, uh, the, the old population model. By that, I don't mean older population, but the way we used to think about uh, uh, population uh, leading up to this period, uh, which was very heavily youth-driven. Uh, and uh, very few people are talking about exactly what we're talking about today. And who's especially not talking about it are marketers and producers of products and services who still think that their market is going to be driven by young people. And uh, that's going to be a decreasing case. It's been one of these great tropes that uh, I, I, one hears, particularly kind of fund managers who are investing in Japan. Uh, their sort of top fact that they like to repeat is that the market in in Japan for for adult diapers is now bigger than the and the one for for baby diapers. I mean, I guess if if you think about, I, I guess the upside uh, of a declining population um, could be that some of the other things we've worried about recently. I mean, particularly the the burden on the world on the environment of a rising population, you might think that this would be good news uh, for the environment. And the other thing that we talk about a lot is the loss of power for labour relative to capital, the way that wages have been squeezed in many countries over the last few decades. You know, If we end up with a sort of chronic labour shortage globally, um, is that also something that might turn around in the next um, 20 or 30 years? Well, we've got you know, three little things there that are really important, not three, three major things. One, in terms of the environment, just about every aspect of, uh, of what's happening in the environment can't help but be improved, but with a smaller population. There's, there's no doubt about that. So there's good news on the environmental front going forward. Everything from the sustainability of fish stocks through to potentially global warming, whatever you want to take a look at. Having fewer people on the face of the earth is good for that. If you've lost all the fish by the time you get to that point, and I guess it's academic, but anyway... Well, it is a bit of a race. Uh, there's, no, there's no doubt about that. 
But uh, the, the, the fact is that if there's fewer, if, if you change the denominator in many of these equations, the numerator starts to change too. And the second point about that, which is the place of labor in, uh, in the marketplace, the idea of unemployment is going to change. The idea of employment is going to change, and the idea of retirement is going to change. A lot of these concepts are going to have to be rethought as the population structure uh, goes through the transition that it's going to go through. The biggest equation in all of this economically is what is the future of economic growth going to be? I think we're probably going to have to rethink that based on the changing structure of the population. Finally, I'm not the first to mention to notice that um, in your book you basically predict that you know some of the world's great nations will not uh, fare very well in this new new world, but Canada will get a new lease on life and might even turn into a global superpower. Um, I suspect you've been teased for that a bit, given that you're two Canadian authors. But what's what's the case for for Canada owning the future? Well, I know uh, we got some criticism about two Canadians <laughs> writing a, a book that had something positive to say about Canada, mainly, mainly because I think we have just have more experience and exposure to it than, than anything else. I mean, we certainly have our troubles here in Canada as well. But the, the one thing that Canada has seems to have gotten right, at least in the short term, is uh, the approach towards immigration. Now, it might be unique to Canada. And the reason that it's unique to Canada is because of this, the, the, um, the uh, construction of our culture. So the idea that you've got something to protect, with the exception of the province of Quebec, is not as strong here as it is in, the, uh, in, in many other countries. So immigration is a short to medium term solution, but it is only a short to medium term solution. And the reason is because the places that normally spin off immigrants are also going through the same population change that, uh, that uh, the developed countries are going through. And quite frankly, uh, immigration is a young person's game, and there are not going to be as many young people immigrating. Well, uh, you know, looking around the world, I'm not sure that one would conclude that the world was becoming more like Canada, but I think I would definitely say it wouldn't be such a bad thing if it were. Uh, thank you very much, Daryl Bricker. Thank you, Stephanie. So I'm joined now by Bloomberg columnist and author Justin Fox. Justin, thank you for coming on Stephanomics. Great to be here. Um, there are a lot of things I like about your columns, but I think the thing that you do more than other people is you spot new facts, interesting things in new data, and then you write about what that data might mean for our economy, but also for the for the way our lives are organised and often, I guess, the way our towns and cities are organised. Um, and I wanted to ask you about a, a top fact that you found buried in some recent US census data on the earnings of different types of households in the US. It was very striking. Tell us more. Um, in the American Community Survey, this annual survey that the Census Bureau did, they asked people um, how they got to work last week. And I actually got surveyed in the American Community Survey a few years ago, and I had actually ridden my bike to work three days the previous week so I could put down, I could be part of that bold group of bike commuters. But anyway, they... Was that the only week that year that you'd been... Uh, one of the there? only. I was living up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where most of the time it was either too cold or too humid to ride my bike to work, but it was a perfect, like beautiful now, week. I feel like you've now undermined the date of it. Anyway, right, exactly. On. Well, but you figure... You know, that that one person happened to do it that week. There'll be other people who would do it other weeks. I think it all works out. So they ask this and they also then they, you know, cross tabulate it with stuff like your median earnings data. And one I, I've been watching this for a few years. And one of the things that kind of 
funny that came out is that people who take public transportation um, now have higher meeting, median earnings in the U.S. than people who drive to work. And the reason for that is pretty simple. It's that public trans- most public transportation users, users in the U.S. are in about five big, rich metropolitan areas. And so they're richer. The other thing that stood out is that people who worked at home had the highest median earnings of any of the main categories that the census tracks. And I look back over the years, and it turned out that you know, in 2010, that was not the case at all. And I think it was about two years ago, um, they passed those who drive. And that just seemed one more. I've been writing about this growing number of people who work at least part of the time from home. And this just seemed like one more interesting um, bit of evidence that this was happening. And it was something that people were doing because it was a good deal for them. Now, I mean, economists always say uh, connection is not uh, causality. Also, you know, the fact that these things go together is not necessarily uh, the reason for them. So if you've got, if you're making more is obviously not just from working from home. It's the fact, the fact that you're working from, from home probably tells us something about the job you're, you're doing. Right. And it's, it's white collar work um, and professional work that people are increasingly doing this. There's there's another um, Bureau of Labor Statistics survey that I actually didn't realize was out there until after I'd done this column, but it just asked people, you know, it's the American Time Use Survey. They asked people how they spend their day. And basically the percentage of people who worked at home at least a little bit on an average day is close to a quarter. And for those with advanced degrees, it's more than 40%. And that's partly just because people with advanced degrees all work way too many hours in the U.S. And so a lot of those people are both working in an office all day and working at home. But there's still the, the percentage of those people who are working in an office at all is much lower than for people in, of, of lower education levels. I guess, I mean, the darker interpretation of this is that, it, you know, it's just one more way in which lower skilled workers uh, in the US and other places are being locked out of the the advantages of uh, being in a 21st century economy. You know, you can't work at home if you're an Amazon warehouse worker right. or you work in a supermarket. I think you also point out that it's a, do you say in your column, it seems to be a white people thing. I mean, there's a lot smaller proportion of African-American and Hispanic people Correct. working from home. Yeah. I mean, it's a privilege extended to people who already have some privileges. And there are lots of ways that it's great. It it sort of allows people to live in different places. It might take a little bit of the pressure off um, real estate markets in places like San Francisco and, and New York. And it, it's interesting that like I, I, I looked at the metropolitan areas in the U.S. that have the highest percentages of at-home workers. And number one is Boulder, Colorado, which is a totally lovely place. Also right outside of a really big metropolitan area, Denver. Kingston, New York, which is the Catskills here outside of New York City, is another one of the top ones. Portland, Oregon is another big one. And there are tons of people who have still have work connections to Silicon Valley, but live in Portland or Bend, Oregon or elsewhere and maybe go down once every two weeks or something like that. You often do write about about cities. It's one another reason I like write your uh, columns. And I guess there's always been a debate about whether or not uh, telecommuting and sort of the internet digitalization generally was going to be good for cities, or whether it was actually going to mean more even distribution of of wealth and and jobs around the economy. I mean, so far. 
we have seen still what you'd call the agglomeration effects. You've still seen cities get more and more, successful cities get more and more successful, despite the fact that you, you know, you'd think people would be able to work from anywhere. Do you think there's any sign? I mean, you see in these numbers, do you think there's any sign of that shifting? I, I I feel like there's some and there are definitely signs in U.S. population data of places like the Bay Area and the New York area starting and New York City proper starting to lose people. Although when you dig a little deeper, it's mostly um, people who earn less money have lower education levels who are the ones bailing out. So it's a little hard. So at this point, not yet, but it definitely is. Uh, one thing that this just made me think of is, you know, the rise of computers was supposed to mean the end of lots of paper in offices. And I think for the first um, decade or so, it was the exact opposite. People had these printers and they printed out twice as much. I now reached a point where I don't print out a whole lot. And I would guess that shows up in um, paper statistics. I mean, I think the the paperless office has bit by bit finally come. And I, you know, they're they're counterforces in this whole agglomeration thing that yes it's really useful to be in a in a in a dense place where you interact with lots of other people but i think it's also possible to find ways to keep taking advantage of that occasionally while saving on living costs commuting costs commuting time and everything else justin fox thank you very much thank you Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. And for more news and analysis during the week from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at MyStephanomics. The story in this episode was reported and written by Jeanette Newman. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Bruce Douglas. Special thanks to Daryl Bricker and Justin Fox. Our executive producer is Scott Lamman, and Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.